Think about the life I live A figure made of clay Think about the things I lost The things I gave away When I'm in a certain mood I search the halls and look One night I found the Good morning. You are tuned to KBOO in Portland, and the time now is just 11 o'clock. Coming up on the Boo, it's Exploration with Physicist Michio Kaku, and his guests are Dr. Charles Seif on Prospects for Fusion Energy and Dr. Neil Shubin speaking on our evolution from the fishes. If you would like to contribute to KBOO, please go to kboo.org and click on Contribute or Become a Member. Thanks very much for listening, and now stay tuned for Exploration. KBOO Community Radio is a proud sponsor of the screening of the documentary film Big Money Agenda on Sunday, February 10th at 6.30 p.m. at the Clinton Street Theater in Portland. Big Money Agenda explores the effects of money in politics, Citizens United, as well as solutions to the issues of money and politics that's preventing real change. There will also be a discussion after the film. Again, that's the screening of the documentary film, Big Money Agenda, on Sunday, February 10th at 6.30 p.m. at the Clinton Street Theater, 2522 Southeast Clinton Street in Portland. More information can be found at kboo.fm on the right side of the homepage under Community Events. Welcome. This is Dr. Michio Kaku, Professor of Theoretical Physics at the City College and the Graduate Center of the City University of New York, and this is Exploration. Every week on Exploration, we discuss the fascinating world of science, as well as its impact on society. Well, today on Exploration, we're very privileged to have two very special guests talking about two very important issues. The first author is Professor Charles Seif, professor of journalism at NYU, who's written a book about fusion power. Everyone talks about energy. Where are we going to get energy to fuel civilization into the next decades? Well, hopefully solar power and wind power and renewable technology will kick in. But yeah, they're still several years away. But in a 10-year time frame, perhaps fusion power becomes a possibility. In other words, the French are building the ITER fusion reactor in southern France. It's due to be christened around 2019. And if, and this is a huge if, if it works, then we may get unlimited energy from seawater. That's right, from seawater, because that's the basic fuel for fusion power. In other words, hydrogen from ordinary seawater can be extracted and then burned in a fusion reactor. So Professor Seif will talk about 
energy from a bottle, a bottle of water. And then in the second half of exploration, we're going to talk about evolution. You know, it never ceases to surprise me that some people are, well, offended if you say that humans descended from an ape-like creature. Wow. In the second half of exploration, you can forget about ape-like creatures. We're talking about fish. That's right. Let's go all the way back. Fish. We're talking about what humans look like now hundreds of millions of years ago. We think that life originally started in the oceans as single-celled organisms, but they in turn gave birth to multiple-celled organisms and worms. Worms eventually became fish, and that's what we'll talk about today. Fish in turn became amphibians like frogs and salamanders. These amphibians eventually became reptiles and dinosaurs, and we're descended from mammals, which is a split off from the reptiles. So in other words, if you take a look at the long sequence of life on the earth, yes, indeed, you can talk about your inner fish, which is what we'll talk about with Dr. Neil Shubin. So once again, fusion power in the first part of exploration and then evolution in the second. Uh, Professor Seif, um, you're a journalist. However, you've written about cosmology, and now you've written a new book called Sun in a Bottle, The Strange History of Fusion and the Science of Wishful Thinking. So how did you, as a journalist, get interested in things that most journalists avoid, like the plague? Well, I have to say I'm really a physics geek at heart. Um, back before I became a journalist, I studied physics and mathematics, and it was only fairly late in my education that I decided that I was more suited to writing than I was to actually performing uh, uh, scientific work. Mm -hmm. So even at the very beginning of my career, uh, I was uh, interested in writing about physics because that's what I loved. And so um, I, my career has been covering physics uh, for a decade and change. And uh, from the very beginning of the time that I was writing, uh, among my first pieces was a large piece about uh, fusion. And uh, coming from the, the physics point of view, I, I thought of this wonderful uh, thing which would solve the world's energy crises. And as a journalist approaching it, I saw that it was a little bit more complex than I, I had initially expected with my physics goggles on. Okay, well, let's just jump right into your book. Uh, your book starts out at some of the hairiest days of the Cold War. In 1945, the United States drops a fission bomb on Hiroshima and another fission bomb on Nagasaki, based on uranium and plutonium. But then in the 1950s, uh, a new race emerges, not with uranium and plutonium, but with the super, the hydrogen bomb. So explain to us what is the difference between the fission bombs that were dropped on Japan and the super, the hydrogen bomb, based on fusion. Well, fission and fusion are two sides of the same coin. In some sense, uh, every atom wants to be iron. It has iron envy. So things which are heavier than iron, like uranium and plutonium, want to split apart in the same sense that a ball wants to roll down a hill. And in the process of splitting apart, they release energy. Uh, fusion, on the other hand, takes light elements. Light elements, on some, in some sense, want to stick together and get heavier, getting closer to iron. Uh, it turns out that the fusion end of the reaction is more energetic per atom than fusion uh, than fission. That is, uh, breaking apart atoms gives you a lot of energy, but fusion, uh, sticking them together, gives you a lot, lot more. So at the 
end of the Manhattan Project, um, when the project ended, um, they, the United States had a bomb that used fission to power it. Uh, in its simplest form, basically all it did was take two hunks of uranium, stick them together, and wham, you get an explosion. Um, so it was easy to do once you got the uranium material uh, to set off the reaction. Uh, Edward Teller, a physicist at the Manhattan Project, uh, was uh, very strongly in favor of using the other side of the coin, fusion, uh, because he realized that it would lead to a weapon of unlimited power, and he called it the super. And the idea basically was to use an explosion, a nuclear, uh, a fission explosion, to set off a fusion explosion, which was much, much, much greater. And Teller was right. Um, the weapon that he eventually created was vastly more powerful than even what obliterated Hiroshima and Nagasaki. To give you a sense of scale, uh, Hiroshima was a, about a 14 kiloton explosion, the equivalent of 14,000 tons of TNT exploding at the same place at the same time. The first full fusion test, called Ivy Mike, um, uh, was 10 megatons, 10 million tons, almost 1,000 times larger than uh, Hiroshima. It evaporated the island it was on, and uh, that was just the beginning. In theory, you can make a fusion bomb as large as you want. Um, the biggest ever detonated was the Russian Tsar Bomba, which was more than 50 megatons of TNT. And uh, after a certain point, it's, it's pointless to get larger because you just wind up uh, lifting a larger and larger column of atmosphere into uh, into space, so it doesn't do that much more damage. Uh, so uh, even though it promised unlimited power, unless you wanted to destroy the Earth, it wasn't that much more effective uh, at uh, doing damage than a, a few, uh, than a fission bomb. Uh, but at the same time, um, the Cold War was getting hot. The Russians had detonated their first nuclear weapon uh, way before Americans thought they could get it, uh, thanks in part to a spy operation uh, that penetrated Los Alamos. Uh, so a panicked America realized, uh, well, we have to get ahead of the Russians and uh, keep them keep nuclear supremacy. So they turned to Edward Teller's idea of a super bomb as a way of staying ahead of the Russian nuclear weapon industry. And uh, as we know, uh, the Russians caught up very, very quickly, and it turned into a nuclear stalemate where each side had so many weapons in their arsenal that they could destroy the world many times over. And I should also point out that when I was in high school, uh, Edward Teller was actually my advisor. And he actually sort of guided my career in, in the early years uh, when I was at Harvard. However, moving on now, uh, we have the Cold War in full swing. And people are now used to the idea that there is a bomb a thousand times more powerful than the Hiroshima and Nagasaki bomb. But other people have said, well, look at Mother Nature. Mother Nature uses fusion to light up the heavens. So now explain to us how Mother Nature uses the process of fusion, not fission, to light up the universe. Yes, it's, it's fusion is responsible for all life on Earth. Um, the sun is essentially a big ball of hydrogen. It's hydrogen gas, uh, and when it was coalescing, uh, it was compressing itself under its own gravity. And 
collapsing, compressing object get hot in general. And so you've got this ball of hydrogen that got hot and dense, hotter and denser. And eventually it got so hot and so dense that the hydrogen uh, moving extremely fast because of the energy uh, of the temperature, the, the, the high temperatures involved, started slamming into each other with enough force to cause fusion reactions. So once you get a big ball of gas large enough uh, to collapse under its own gravity and heat each other, heat everything up uh, high enough, you get a fusion reaction. And the fusion reaction is what makes the sun shine. Uh, these hydrogens getting converted eventually into helium release energy, and that energy shines out in all directions. That's what makes stars shine. But it's this reaction is extraordinarily difficult to get going. You need such an enormous ball of hydrogen um, to s- kickstart that fusion reaction uh, that it, it, it's hard to do. Um, even a mass of hydrogen the size of Jupiter, Jupiter is almost like a star. The problem is it's not large enough to get so hot that you start that fusion reaction in its belly. So Jupiter is, in, in essence, everything that a star has except just that extra gravitational oomph to get it hot enough and tight enough to ignite. And in fact, in the movie 2010, Arthur C. Clarke talks about uh, aliens igniting Jupiter, so our solar system becomes a double star system. However, Jupiter would have to be about 10 times bigger uh, at minimum in order to get uh, ignition. Now, let's talk about the promise, the promise of fusion. Why has fusion um, hypnotized whole generations of inventors and quacks and top physicists? What is the promise of fusion? Why is there so much interest in it? Why have so many charlatans jumped into the game? Imagine if you had a sun on your desktop that in a little bottle you had a fusion reaction going. If you could get this, if you could have something like this, you basically have an unlimited source of energy. Um, Hydrogen is abundant. It's the most abundant element in the universe. It's everywhere. It's in the oceans. uh, uh, Water is two atoms of, of hydrogen for one atom of oxygen. So if you were able to tap into the sun's reaction and turn hydrogen into helium and releasing energy into the process, you can turn this un- virtually unlimited source of fuel into energy for free. And because the fusion reaction, if, if you if you manage to uh, get it working in the right way, you could just keep feeding hydrogen in and helium and energy come out. And helium is clean. I mean, if you, if you wanted to, you could release it into the atmosphere and it would float up into space. Um, and so this promises, in theory, um, Unlimited energy with unlimited fuel and no waste. Reality is not quite as simple as that, but that is the promise. Okay, and for Spider-Man fans, uh, for those people who saw Spider-Man 2, uh, Dr. Octopus creates fusion in his laboratory in Manhattan, which is not the place to do it. But the machine looks like a little sun. It looks like actually a star. and You can see uh, sunspots and solar flares on this miniature sun. However, in real life, uh, we don't expect to create a miniature sun like in Spider-Man 2. What will a fusion reactor really look like? Well, there's two main areas that... Uh mainstream fusion researchers are looking at to make a, a, a real fusion reactor. And they are lasers and magnets. Uh, lasers uh, are a very clever way of getting the heat and pressure that you need to take a hydrogen pellet 
and make it collapse and start fusing. Basically, you shine laser light at all, from all directions, and you squash a tiny pellet. And as it squashes, it compresses, uh, and hopefully it ignites. And if you manage to get lasers that are strong and efficient enough uh, that you create more energy uh, out of that collapsing, fusing, tiny pellet of hydrogen than you consume by getting the lasers going in the first place, then you've got a source of energy. You've got a, uh, a fusion reactor. Um, no one has gotten that far, but it is theoretically possible. Another method is using magnets. Uh, it turns out that magnetic fields uh, affect fusing plasmas like hydrogen. And if you shape a magnetic field right, you can create a bottle with which to contain a very hot uh, cloud of hydrogen. And so uh, a magnetic donut shaped right and uh, with a cloud of hydrogen you throw heat in, eventually you might get a fusing plasma. And once you get that reaction going, you just ha have to figure out a way of uh, piping new hydrogen in and piping uh, fused helium out, and you've got a source of energy going. Again, uh, these uh, magnetic bottles aren't working to the point where you put you get more energy out than you put in uh, heating the plasma and containing it. But in theory, uh, if our magnets improve and our, our knowledge improves over time, you might have a magnetic bottle that contains a miniature sun. Okay, now, because a fusion machine would use ordinary seawater, which is limitless pretty much, as the basic uh, energy source, and because the energy released is almost limitless, the number of uh, charlatans and quacks that have gone into the business is quite large. So let's talk about some of the false starts and some of the dashed hopes. Uh, beginning with a Dr. Richter, but the list is long, let's talk about some of the false starts. Yes, it's, the, the, the goal is so lofty, that the unlimited energy, that the idea of fusion has attracted uh, quacks and hoaxers and genuine scientists who are misguided uh, from the very beginning. Um, in 1951, the world was absolutely stunned to headlines that Argentina, of all places, had solved our energy problems forever. There was an ex, a German expat named Ronald Richter who had convinced Juan Perón to fund a research laboratory on a secret island in the middle of a lake uh, to get fusion reactions going in what he called a solar thermotron. Um, and he kept the world going for about a year. People were arguing back and forth. Could he have done it? Could he not have done it? It turns out Richter was uh, barking mad. Um, he uh, would get this wild look in his eyes. And dump a whole bunch of gunpowder into his experiment and blow the doors off of his laboratory in gigantic explosions and rush out and write uh, fusion on a piece of ticker tape. Um, and yet, for many, for many, many months, he kept Juan Perón's government believing that uh, he was on his way to solving the world's energy crises, and this would be a great prestige for Argentina. Uh, eventually, uh, physicists in Argentina convinced Perón that something was going on uh, that was a little fishy. They went and visited the, the laboratory with their own Geiger counters, and if, in fact, you have fusion reactions going, you should be able to detect neutron radiation coming off, and they detected nothing. So they proved that Ronald Richter was uh, perpetrating a fraud, and 
contemporary accounts say that he wasted between $4 million and $70 million of the Argentinian uh, treasury in the process of uh, pursuing his dream. Uh, and uh, he disappeared off the world stage very rapidly, as you can imagine. Um, but, in fact, uh, everyone who is involved in fusion some uh, form winds up deceiving themselves or deceiving others about their achievements. In 1958, um, British scientists uh, at a very, very prestigious lab built this machine called Zeta. Uh, Zeta was a magnetic bottle of sorts, and the scientists had convinced themselves that they had gotten fusion in a laboratory, and uh, they cracked open beers, they announced to the world that they were on their way to solving the world's energy crises. Um, turns out that they were wrong, uh, that they were not seeing fusion, that they were deceiving themselves with uh, neutrons. They were seeing neutrons, but it wasn't from fusion that they wanted. Uh, so they had to humiliate themselves on the world stage. After all these tabloids say, said, uh, energy to last, last a lifetime, uh, no, no more energy bills, the British teams had to say, well, uh, not really. Okay, now more recently, uh, we had this huge fiasco concerning uh, two chemists, uh, Pons and Fleischmann, who grabbed world attention. Uh, covers of, I think, Newsweek magazine and the New York Times, and everyone was talking about, well, did Pons and Fleischmann create fusion in a bottle? Not hot fusion, the hot fusion of lasers and magnets, but cold fusion. So tell us a little bit about cold fusion. Yes, yes. In, in 1989, two chemists, uh, one of whom was extremely well uh, uh, celebrated, made this announcement to the press that absolutely stunned the world. They claimed that where these hot fusion, this magnetic fusion, this laser fusion uh, research has been failing for years, wasting tens of billions of dollars, these two chemists, uh, working independently, had spent $100,000, and they had solved the problem. And what they argued was that they managed to pipe hydrogen into a chunk of metal, a palladium, which has the interesting property that soaks up hydrogen like a sponge. And the theory was that if you get enough hydrogen in there, uh, the hydrogen will be forced so close together that they might be forced to fuse. And in doing the research on their own, they thought they saw more energy coming out of their palladium cell than was going in. So they thought they had created a device which was creating fusion energy. Um, so as you can imagine, as soon as this was announced, it was headlines everywhere. Cover of Time, cover of Newsweek, New York Times, Wall Street Journal, everywhere was talking about this for months and months and months. Um, it turned out that the scientists were deceiving themselves. Uh, there was a bit of fishiness. Uh, some data was moving back and forth. It's uncertain exactly what was going on, but it, when the cells were reproduced in better circumstances with more sophisticated equipment, it turned out that there was no excess energy, and more importantly, there were no neutrons coming out. It turns out when you fuse heavy forms of hydrogen together, you expect neutrons to fly away, and neutrons are a sign of fusion. They were seeing no neutrons, and that made it pretty clear that nothing was actually happening. No. However, it yeah. took these, these uh, it was a huge battle for, for years. It, uh, physicists versus chemists became a red state versus blue state thing, uh, where the 
East Coast were trying to tear down a research from chemists at the University of Utah. Uh, so it became a huge political battle that still affects the physics community on some level. Now, you can simply calculate, using the back of an envelope, the uh, neutron count that would occur if they really had fusion in a bottle, and it's sufficient to kill them. So the very fact that Pons and Fleischmann are still alive uh, means that they could not possibly have attained fusion in a bottle. But then the question is, well, what did they attain? They did get net energy coming out. That's been verified by different laboratories. Some people have gone back to the literature on palladium back in the 1800s. It turns out that a person applied for a patent for one of the first cigarette lighters. He used palladium, put it in water, and attained a net amount of energy, which he used to light a flame, and he got a patent for it, uh, a palladium uh, cigarette lighter. And some people think that that's what they discovered. Well, what are your thoughts? It's been several years since then. What did Pons and Fleischmann really have in their bottle that gave energy? Was it a cigarette lighter or, or what? It's really hard to tell. Palladium has an extraordinarily interesting chemistry. Uh, it has been fooling researchers for years, as you've, as you've noted, that not only is there that patent, uh, a number uh, in the early 20th century, two researchers uh, thought they had achieved fusion in palladium. And uh, because they, they came to, were thinking along the same lines as Pons and Fleischmann were, and they thought they detected helium inside, an excess of helium inside palladium. Uh, which would be a nice sign of fusion because you're creating helium. It turns out that they were deceiving themselves because it turns out uh, palladium soaks up helium just as well as it soaks up hydrogen, so you have enriched helium. So if they were seeing excess energy, and it's not entirely clear from the setup of the experiment that they were, I mean, they certainly thought they were. there was some sloppiness, um, but it's certainly possible that they, they were seeing it. It would most likely be a a matter of chemistry, a chemical reaction where bonds are breaking uh, rather than a nuclear reaction uh, where bonds in the center of a nucleus are being formed, that, that uh, uh, the nuclear bonds that change atoms into other atoms uh, are what are changed in a fusion reaction, as opposed to the attachments between atoms, which are chemical bonds, which are being changed in a chemical reaction like burning paper or or cracking water and so whatever they were seeing almost certainly was a chemical reaction and chemical reactions are well studied and there's only so much you can do for solving the world's energy uh, problems with chemical reactions in fact burning gasoline is an extraordinarily efficient chemical reaction that allows us to power our cars um, so it's not certain that there's anything there for solving the world's energy uh, problems unless you have a nuclear reaction of some sort. It's pretty clear that that is not what they saw. Now, to a physicist, it was absolutely staggering that you had these two respected chemists that didn't understand anything about the quantum theory. If you, if you bring the protons together very closely, as you mentioned, then you could attain fusion. But you have to bring them really close, uh, 10 to the minus 13 centimeters. However, in the, the Pons and Fleischmann experiment, these atoms are separated by 10 to the minus 8 centimeters. And you can simply, using a back of an envelope calculation, this is what we give our undergraduates. Our undergraduates can calculate that the fusion you get in a bottle is almost zero as a consequence. 
So for the physics community, what was absolutely staggering is the fact that chemists don't know any physics at all. Well, let's move on because we had a story, another apparently fraudulent story that just took place a few months ago, this time at Oak Ridge National Laboratory, involving something called bubble fusion. So explain to us what is bubble fusion and how did the Nazis, of all people, first stumble onto this whole thing called sonoluminescence? Yes, uh, sonoluminescence is this really bizarre um, reaction, and it's, it's only very recently been understood, uh, where uh, basically you take sound waves and you bombard a liquid with it, and you induce what's called cavitation. Under the right circumstances, if you hit water very hard, it actually behaves like a solid, and it can crack, and just for a tiny, tiny fraction of a second, you can cause a crack in water. And what happens when you have that crack is you create a little vacuum, and that vacuum causes water to evaporate and causes a bubble. Um, by bombarding liquids with sound waves, you cause these bubbles, and if you time those sound waves just right, you can cause those bubbles to collapse very dramatically. And uh, it was discovered that if you do this just right, you get such a dramatic collapse that you get some sort of reaction. No one quite knows exactly what it is, even today, um, that causes a little flash of blue light. So if you turn off the lights and you bombard a tub of water with sound, you can actually get tiny little lights. And it's poorly understood, but it's really cool. You've got, you've got a mechanism for compressing and heating something, and a gentleman out at Oak Ridge named Rusi Taliarkan uh, came up with a clever idea of how to get enormous bubbles by shooting neutrons into the liquid that would collapse dramatically. And his hope was that by having this dramatic collapse and heating and compression, you might actually induce fusion in the center of the bubble. Well, I'm afraid that's it for the first part of Exploration. Once again, you've been listening to an interview with Professor Charles Seif of New York University. The book is called The Sun in a Bottle. And in the second half of Exploration, we're going to talk about your inner fish with a leading evolutionary biologist. Once again, this is Exploration. If you want a copy of today's program, call the Pacifica Program Service at one 800 735-0230. That's 1-800-735-0230 for a copy of today's program. Also, be sure to check into my website. is www.mkaku.org, M-K-A-K-U.org. So stay tuned now for the second half of Exploration. Welcome 
Once again, this is Dr. Michio Kaku, Professor of Theoretical Physics at the City College and the graduate